Do you worry about Walt Whitman's vengeful ghost coming after you? <laughs> oh, it's fine. He was, he was apparently so, such a lovely person, uh, you know, face to face that I have no concerns. to the very first ProQuest podcast, a podcast from ProQuest uh, about research and interesting people uh, involved in all the things that we do at ProQuest. Um, my name is Matt Toby, and I am joined by uh, Courtney Suchu. Hello, I'm Courtney Suchu. And our, our guest today is Zachary Turpin, who is an assistant professor of American literature at the University of Idaho and a literary sleuth, which is what we'll be talking uh, about today. Uh, welcome, Zach. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on your podcast. Is that, that, is, that is what it is, right? <laughs> that is what it is. You got it. I thought I read that right. And thank you for being our inaugural guest. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. I was really happy to be a part of this. I'm ready to go. So, Zach, the last time we spoke was in April 2018, and I think it was around the time when you were in the news with the discovery of the Walt Whitman novella, which was yeah. not long after the discovery of the Manly Health. Do I have that chronology correct? I think so. so it's, I'm trying to recall exactly when this happened. I, um, I think in 2016 was when Manly Health was making headlines, and yeah. I believe 2017 is when 2017. Um, Whitman's novella w was then in, in the news. But it's, it's sort of been in and out ever since. So would you mind telling us a little bit about how these discoveries came to be? So, you know, the, the, the only word that I can use for how I got into this work, it, it's really a cop-out word, but it's, it's that it happened organically, right? Which, which is another way of saying I really don't have any idea how this developed, but it did. Um, I think that I think that the way it got started is that, like most PhD candidates, I often found myself using digital archives and digital, um, you know, things like ProQuest and, and other archives of that nature that centralize a lot of the materials that I would be looking through. I, I think that's pretty normal for any any doctoral candidate in English or the humanities. Um, but actually coming to digital archives as a place for exploration was just, it just kind of like happened. I, I think that what happened was I had been reading about um, some sort of like potentially missing works by like Melville or whoever. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of just on a whim had tried to suss one out online. And I think I went to like Google books or something, which, which is, you know, in fairness, that's a, that's a huge resource. Um, and what happened was I was looking for Melville. He had a lost novel called Isle of the Cross, which is, is a dubious existence. And some other things that I had read in his biography that he'd written a little essay called October Mountain. Um, and what happened was I was looking for October Mountain. I remember this now. And I found an essay by Henry Ward Beecher. Uh, that's Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother. He was, um, he, was a, he was a preacher and like an orator. And it looked just like this essay was supposed to, that, that Melville was supposed to have written. And I thought, um, can, can I, can I swear? Do you, do you want me to keep it? Do you want me to keep it PG? Go for it. Go not. <laughs> I thought, holy shit. I think I just found something. 
<laughs> um, and, and again, like I'm not sure that the case, but I, I was able to make the case in an article later that probably uh, an early biographer of Melville was misremembering this Henry Ward Beecher essay, which is very similar. It's written about the same mountain and the same month or the same year. Um, misremembered as Melville's. And I thought, this is something that I can do and that probably anyone can do. Um, and so the, I think the way that I came to these Whitman works was, was again, organic, which is another way of saying it just happened. <laughs> um, I had been reading Melville scholarship and there's this uh, Melville scholar named William White who had published a little list of Melville's pen names. Um, I think he was looking, he was trying to verify if a few more were, were legit or not. But there's this, he published this long list of all these really sort of idiosyncratic names like Velser Brush, Mose Velser, a schoolmaster, you know who, or all, all these different things, um, JRS. And I remember thinking, those are really just delightful keywords. I think, I think most people who grew up uh, in the late 20th century or, you know, who are now alive in the 21st century, you, you kind of have like a, an innate sense of how keywords work because we're just Googling everything, <laughs> you know, it sounds, it sounds silly, but mm-hmm. we all have like PhDs in, um, in like key phrases and metadata and things like that without knowing it. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, if I'm already screwing around in digital archives, maybe I could, I could take some of these and plug them in and just see what happens. Uh, and this is on ProQuest, by the way. I was I was using ProQuest historical newspapers, and after a few of these pen names yielded nothing, the name Vos, Mose Velser yielded a hit. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't in the 1900s. It wasn't in the 2000s. It was in 1858, um, and it was a it was a literary advertisement that said, among other things, there would be a series on manly wellness published by Mose Velser in the New York Atlas tomorrow. Tomorrow being like the next day in 1858. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's strange. I have never heard of Whitman having written like a men's wellness article, um, certainly not under the pseudonym. And so I, I you know, I ultimately had to request um, microfilm from, I think it was, it was, um, somewhere in Pennsylvania. And when I I just sort of forgot about it, I was like, well, that's interesting. Maybe there's going to be a little thing and, you know, I'll find like a small article who knows. Um, and what happened was that this microfilm finally came through interlibrary loan. And when I fed it into the microfilm reader, which by by the way, was the first time I ever touched a microfilm reader. Um, it was like, it was, it was instantly in love with it. What came up when I scrolled to this particular date was this big, um, opening to what looked like a series and, you know, I, so I thought, oh, I'm going to scroll to the next. It said to be continued. So I scrolled to the next installment and there it was part two. And then I scrolled again in part three and part four. And eventually I had scrolled through 13 parts of a book length men's wellness treatise that no one in the world knew about except for me. Um, I think you could see how that would hook somebody. Definitely. On yes. this kind of work. On this kind of work. What was the first thing you did after that? The, the very first thing? Well, like, did you, who did you tell? How do you decide what to do? I think I walked, I, so I walked over to my wife's department cause she's a political scientist and she was getting a doctorate at the time in, in um, political science. And I, I think I said something like, uh, like I walked into the days and I was like, I think I just found a lost book by Walt Whitman. I think I have a <laughs> dissertation topic. I think, you know, I just had all these, like, all these, it really wasn't, it didn't, it took about 24 hours to really set in. Yeah that this wasn't just an item of interest, but this was like a, right. a major 
find that would kind of blow open our understanding of a pretty dimly understood period, like the, the few years either side of, of Leaves of Grass, which first comes out in 1855. We, we know some things about Whitman, but there's, there's a lot we don't know. And suddenly we have this whole philosophical treatise on wellness written by the guy um, in, in this period. And, you know, this is, this is also kind of more or less what happened with um, the novella that I found. So I was sitting in this heady period of, you know, I'm like, I'm like doing news interviews and I'm thinking about all the ways that this is going to advance the field. And, you know, I, I, I also am sort of now obsessively searching on ProQuest historical newspapers. <laughs> um, and what ended up occurring was, was sort of the same thing all over again. I, um, I was on the Whitman archive. So if, if you're ever interested in just a deluge of Walt Whitman material, you go to whitmanarchive.org. It's, it's every book that he's ever known to have published, all sorts of journalism and poetry and interviews. It's his notebooks. It's crazy. So, Zach, I want to ask you, I want to ask you real quick. Were you, were you like this enthusiastic and passionate about Walt Whitman before you started doing this research? Or did, did these discoveries like spark a special interest? This is, this is a, that's a good, right. Like the chicken and the egg. That's a good question. I would, so I wasn't this enthusiastic about Whitman because this is really, I think a special experience, but I did come to Whitman for the first time as, as a PhD candidate, like it's, it's a little, I, I'm still a little embarrassed to admit it, but somehow Whitman and I missed one another in high school, in undergrad in my master's program. But one of my professors um, who ended up being my dissertation advisor, uh, my chair as well, his name is Michael Snedeker. He taught a 19th century American literature class and he had us read the first edition of Leaves of Grass. And it was real. it was such a, like an eye opening experience to read that thing for the first time it's just like volcanically creative um it's so different it's such a like um a unique document that i remember um i think every everyone who reads it for the first time is so bowled over um but you know then finding lost work by whitman it's an entirely different level of, of of um enthusiasm i guess so, yeah, my enthusiasm has grown over time, <laughs> for sure. Now, was this an unknown pseudonym of Walt Whitman and and no one had just happened to search for it before? I, so I couldn't speak to whether anyone had searched for it before, uh, but I can say that Mose Velser, which is the, the pseudonym he used when he wrote this wellness treatise, it was already known. He had published a few um, articles uh, using that name in the New Orleans uh, Daily Crescent. He had published a few um, in New York. And he had also written a few kind of like articles uh, in manuscripts uh, about like the opera that he that mm-hmm. he signed with Mose Felser. So it, it was known to be hit. Um, Mose is, is like a Bowery boy nickname from the period. And Velser was his his mother's maiden name. Her name was Louisa Van Velser. Um, so it's pretty easy to see how he kind of put this name together. Sure. Um, but as to whether anyone had used it to look before, you know, I, I kind of don't know what to say. I think, I think that what happens is there's just so much material yeah. on so many of the authors that we, that we love from the 19th century. I mean, these were like the, one, the first and second generations of truly professional writers. So mm-hmm. at the beginning of the 19th century, the professional writers are like uh, James Fenimore Cooper um, and Washington Irving and a few others. It's, it's not a common 
profession that one can do without also doing other work. Mm -hmm. Um, But as the publishing industry explodes in the 19th century, suddenly tons of people are writing professionally. And to make ends meet, they have to publish a lot, like like, um, journalism and poetry and fiction, anything that they can crank out. And I think this leads to a situation in which uh, just there's more material than than can be comfortably handled um, in, you know, in in an easy span of time. Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea how much Whitman might have been paid for uh, a a job like this? Oh, man, I don't know. You know, um, I have no, no idea. This this would have been one of his freelancing gigs that he did Mm -hmm. um, in the years before and after Lisa Grass, because right Mm -hmm. around 1850, he, he stops being, he was a, uh, a journalist and a newspaper editor for something like 20 years. Um, he, you know, he drops out of middle school to be a typesetter's assistant. So he's a newspaperman from the very start, but around 1850 or 1849, he, he largely gives up that kind of work for house building and real estate development in Brooklyn. And he's, he's writing like little things on the side, um, the things mm-hmm. we know about, but it probably would not have been a lot, certainly not enough to make his living on, or I think he would have written exclusively. Right. Um, there's very little that we know about these, these works, the, the Lost Wellness Treatise, the Lost Novella, um, other than the fact that they exist and that Whitman wrote them. These are still outstanding questions. So what, tell us more um, about your uh, latest finding. Oh, yeah. Um, so the, the sort of latest in the series of finds um, that I've been privileged to make was, um, so it was four poems, four early published poems, and one early published essay by Anne Sexton, the, the, one of the great 20th century American poets, the so-called confessional poet, um, a friend of Robert Lowell and Sylvia Plath. Um, this, again, it, it just kind of ha- like it, it's not like it just happened because it it once again conveniently occurred on ProQuest historical newspaper. So it's not like it's not like I just tripped over these things. <laughs> like I think I think the reason that this sort of work is possible now is because of the power of of um, digital archives and data providers like ProQuest and others like that. You know, uh, there's a reason that these things are coming up now, and it's not yeah. just because they're there. They were always there. Um, but the way that this, this one happened was kind of shockingly mundane. Um, so that, that Whitman wellness treatise I was talking about, that took a few hours uh, worth of um, digital searching before I got any kind of pings at all. Um, and Whitman's novella, which sort of was like the same thing all over again, that, that took a few, I think, 100 hours of work going through his notebooks and choosing all sorts of like key phrases that I was finding before any... Uh, again, literary notices came up to point my way. Um, and that one ultimately was only in the Library of Congress. That was, that was really difficult to find. And Sexton's poems, which are now out in the journal Fugue, um, they were just there. Like, so I, I, this is what happened. I was thinking about the, the writers who I really value who are not in the public domain. So if, if you know your U.S. copyright law, you know that anything published before 1923... Um, is open access. You can you can publish it, reprint it. You can do whatever you want. But copyright dictates that anything um, beyond 1923 is, is still possibly under copyright. Um, which which is one of the things that keeps me doing 19th century work. It's just it's very easy when you when you are working with 19th century stuff. You don't have to think about 
um, the, you know, copyright ownership. But I remember thinking, you know, like, what the hell? Like, maybe I'll just search for 20th century materials. Um, who knows what might be out there? Um, and I think I, I looked for some Sylvia Plath material, and she's so well-studied that I just couldn't find anything. Her bibliography is so exhaustive. Um, and I remember thinking, well, Sylvia, if I try Sylvia Plath, I've got to try Anne Sexton, um, who I uh, secretly like even more. And then what, what happened was I was on ProQuest Historical Newspapers, which if you're familiar with the interface, it's very, it's very clean and white. Um, and uh, I, I always use the advanced search because to me, basic search is just, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not what I like. Um, and so I'm, I'm in the advanced search and I just type in Anne Sexton in quotation marks. It's like a Google search. Um, and what came up were a lot of Ancestor materials because she published under her own name regularly. Um, she's not known to have used any pseudonyms that I'm aware of. And some of the earliest poems just kind of looked funny to me, but the titles weren't familiar. And, you know, I'm not a Sexton scholar, um, but something about them just didn't seem quite right. Um, and, and, you know, a few brief Google searches also didn't really clarify the matter. So I, I was talking to my colleague, Aaron Singer, uh, who's also who was also a doctoral candidate at the University of Houston. Now she's an assistant professor at Louisiana Tech, um, and she really lit up. She was like, "These are not, you know, this is not a thing. Nobody knows about these." Um, so we're in that unique position again of knowing about something that nobody else in the world apparently knows about, and then having to ask anyone who might know. So we we approached several different Sexton scholars. Um, in, in the United States and Britain, none of them had heard of these. And uh, finally, we, we thought, okay, well, I mean, there's this only one person left to get in touch with, and that's Anne Sexton's daughter, Linda Gray Sexton. She's her literary executor. And um, I remember thinking, well, I, I'll bet you I know what's going to happen, because there are some kind of infamous stories about literary, exe- like the Joyce estate, you know, there's some that are like really standoffish. And I thought, well, what's probably going to happen is we're going to write to Linda Gray Sexton. And she will, like, gently but politely rebuff us. She'll probably say something like, you know, oh, the, the estate is well aware of these poems. Thank you for bringing them to our attention. We're, you know, we're not particularly interested in reprinting them now, but we appreciate your concern. Something like that. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, that. That was my sense, that we would just sort of hit the brick wall of politeness. Um, and instead, what happened was entirely the opposite. You know, we wrote Linda Sexton. We sent her these poems. Um, in our enthusiasm and she wrote back quickly and she essentially responded with all the warmth and enthusiasm that we had you know she said i've, I've not heard of these this is very interesting um where did you find them um and once we had we said oh well you know we found them um in a just a, a digital archive proquest historical newspapers and we said you know if you are interested we'd be very excited to pursue reprinting these and she was even more excited than we were. It, from that point on, she was our collaborator. And, you know, um, now she's our, our friend. Was there any hesitancy to bring these to the public's attention? Because it seems to me, like, I don't know a ton about Anne Sexton, but she's a completely different persona than Walt Whitman, who's just, like, freewheeling and out there. My sense of Anne Sexton is that she's much more reserved about her style and how how she um, 
like the persona that she's cultivated for herself. So was there any thought that maybe there was a reason why these poems weren't collected in the book? Like maybe it wouldn't have been what she wanted to do? That, that's a tough question. I, um, th- there must be some reason, right? Like I, I really don't think of Anne Saxton as the sort of person who would have forgotten that she wrote these poems, you know, between the time when these were published, which was 1958 and 1959. And the time that she collected her first volume of poems, um, which was called to bedlam and partway back was just a year. So it, it isn't as if she would have like just completely spaced on, on having published these things. Um, and it, it's not, it's not like they're published in some obscure place. These appeared in the Christian science monitor under her own name, which was at the time it was like a, a really a hotbed of, of creativity. This is where a lot of poets published pretty radical stuff. But so some of the decisions that Anne, uh, that Linda had to make after her mother's death um, were what to do with the many unpublished final things that she had, that she had made. She had like several volumes worth of materials. Um, so Linda's already pretty practiced in making, making these decisions. Ultimately, her determination was that these should see the light of day. Number one, because they already did, right? They were, they were published in a, in a magazine. It's not like they were in manuscript only. Yeah. And number two, because Linda thought, and we agree, that these reveal more about Anne Sexton yeah. uh, in the beginning. So, so this is a person, by the way. Anne Sexton starts writing poetry at this time. So 1958-1959 is right around when she has just begun writing. And this is at the behest of her therapist, who, among other things, recommends poetry writing um, is, is, a, is a sort of like um, a way of, um, is essentially self-care, you know. So she goes to the Boston Center for Adult Education and starts writing with these really big writers like Robert Lowell and all these people. And th- so this is, these are the poems of a person who essentially just became a poet. And you would think that that would mean that they are uh, underpowered or that they're, you know, like hackneyed or unoriginal. And yet even these early poems are really powerful. They're just powerful in like a different way. So, you know, Anne Sexton is, is often called a, um, a confessional poet because she's writing about things, sort of like Sylvia Plath, but at the time one just didn't write about, right? Like, uh, like menstruation, uh, suicidal ideation, um, abortions. The, these are like things that were thought, formerly thought to have been unpoetic. Um, Anne Sexton just didn't think that way. And so often when you think about some of the great Anne Sexton poetry, you think about these really raw, visceral subjects. And the poetry you see here doesn't quite, the, the, the topics are different. She's talking about skiing. She's talking about an argument in an art gallery. Hmm. Uh, her essay that we found is about growing a lawn so it, it, on the one hand, it doesn't thematically maybe match up with some of her early yeah. work. On the other hand, it's, it's just so fascinating. This is coming from the same person who's dealing with the same problems. How to be a woman in full in the 1950s. Yeah. I mean, think about the 1950s. This is like poodle skirts and like, you know, Anne Sexton is living in suburban America at a time when the vitality of womanhood and all these really rich interesting uh, issues, you know, all those confessional issues she's going to write about are not given the privilege of voice. And so you can see her working her way towards these things and doing it really creatively. This is what I love about poetry. Like you were talking earlier about copyright, but at a certain level, 
like poetry goes beyond copyright. Like when you when you read someone's poetry, it doesn't just belong to them anymore. It becomes a part of you, and their experiences become a part of yours. Mm-hmm. So there's there's like a fine line between thinking of of Anne Sexton as this person who existed and had had these troubles and historically lived in this time, and then having those experiences become like a part of you as the reader. And then that does become part of our legacy. Like at some point, a poet, their legacy doesn't necessarily belong to them because it, it is public and it becomes a part of the reader. Like there's a there's an interesting merging between the, the writer and the reader that I think happens in poetry that's more intimate than maybe other genres. That's a pretty radical statement too. It, it makes sense to me. Um, I think what's what's interesting about situations like this is that they do emphasize that question you had before. When is it appropriate to bring something back to the world? I mean, how do you make that decision? Especially when an artist is not available to tell you what to do. You know, when, when you're talking about Walt Whitman's words, by the way. So Whitman is, like you said, he's effusive. He's positive. He's optimistic. He's prolific. But he also had a really deep sense of shame about some of his work. Yeah, he, was, he wasn't just building a body work. He was building a persona. Like he had a rep. Um, he had to keep up and that rep did not include reminding everyone of what he would have called his juvenilia. Um, and, and, you know, he even said, so at the end of his life, he collects his complete works. Um, you know, the final so-called deathbed edition of leaves of grass includes a few of his short stories, which he wrote in his twenties and thirties. He was really not a fan of those by that time. He, He really, really did not want people to read those. But he says in this little preface, he says, I've collected them here to prevent their, the annoyance of their surreptitious issue. So he's saying, if I don't give them to you now, somebody else is going to release them and it's going to piss me off. <laughs> so he, he really, it's like nine stories that he collects there. That, that leaves out like 20 more. And, and a novella that he written, Franklin Evans. It's just awful temperance novel uh, that he wrote when he was a young man uh, that he claimed he wrote drunk, by the way. <laughs> you you can see how authors are aware of this right like the, there's a certain there's probably I, i'm just stuck on the idea of walt whitman writing a temperance novel like of all yeah. the literary figures to i don't know that just is um surprising to me he wrote it he wrote it in his early 20s um a, an editor approached him who published a magazine i believe it was the it was published in the New World, I think. Anyway, temperance was like, it was a big uh, social issue in the 1840s. This is when he writes it. An editor asked him to write a temperance novel because they were selling like hotcakes. And he said, he, it's like 60,000 words. He said he wrote it in three days, uh, <laughs> drunk on gin fizzies the whole time. That was his claim. Try that. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, apparently it works. You know, that actually was the, the best selling text of his lifetime. So while he was alive, the text that moved the most units was that temperance novel, Franklin Evans. Imagine how irritating that must have been oh, for him. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But it, it does it does make you wonder. So this is a this is sort of um, a question that comes up when you're talking about literary sleuthing or or literary archaeology or whatever you want to call it. Um, when is it okay to? bring a, a, a sort of like a hidden item or a secret back to the world. Uh, I know what I think, but I don't know that there's an answer. I think anytime you reach a certain level of notoriety, uh, there are going to be people who want to read everything you've written, whether you want them to or not. 
It's true. You know, Whit- Whitman is a good example, and Sexton is too. Whitman wanted to be in charge of his legacy. This is why he, this is why every book he ever published, every full, because he published little chat books, but every major poetic volume he published was just called Leaves of Grass. Um, he, he's always revising and expanding his major poetic corpus. Like his legacy is this thing that he's just fiddling with and fiddling with. He's like, he's like the George Lucas before there's a George Lucas. He just can't <laughs> stop like trying to perfect it. Um, and th- those two are not on the same plane, by the way. <laughs> um, he wants to manage what his artistic legacy is. And the unfortunate fact is that you can't do that. You, you just can't, right? Um, it, it's both great and terrible that artists have control over their art. Um, but the, the, the thing about Whitman is that he, there's a contradiction. On the one hand, he wants control. On the other hand, he wants to be remembered as the great American poet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means, like you said, being studied down to the molecular level. And so on the one hand, I think he'd be pretty pissed off that these things have come to light. He, he even said uh, that, that somebody was going to put out an ish, uh, like a, a volume of his short stories illegally. And he says something like, I have half a mind to shoot him if I, <laughs> like, if, if I were to come in contact with him. <laughs> um, so you can see how he had strong feelings about these things. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, he wanted to be remembered forever is that that creative genius, that person who makes like a, a cultural watershed with his work. Um, and I think he, he would be delighted to find out that he's publishing volumes and making headlines, you know, more than a century after his death. <laughs> Do you worry about Walt Whitman's vengeful ghost coming after you? <laughs> Oh, it's fine. He was, he was apparently so, such a lovely person, uh, you know, face to face that I have no concerns. He was, um, he, he rarely got upset in person. He was very, uh, loving figure. People would travel from all over the world to shake his hand in Camden, New Jersey at the end of his life. He'll be fine. (laughs) Like this is, this is the thing too, is that I think there are definitely some cases in which it is a difficult decision whether or not to release unknown material. But like you said, notoriety is an interesting thing. And I think that when it comes to um, preserving America's cultural legacy, I think it's important to know what that legacy really is. Mm -hmm. Like in the end, it's just like um, Tom Cruise says in A Few Good Men, I want the truth. I want the truth. I don't I don't want to know what, you know, previous generations of literary scholars have decided is great literature. I want everything. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that's one of the great things about Procrast. Right? Procrast gives you everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just I want the truth. I don't want some managed version of what our cultural heritage is. Because mm-hmm. once you start managing things, then you begin excluding voices that don't deserve to be excluded. Uh-huh. And you know, also, again, it, it depends on who you're talking about. Um, but I think, generally speaking. More is better, you know, as, as somebody who studies 19th century American lit and 20th century, too. I'm beginning to get that Socratic feeling where all I know is that I know nothing. There's just there's so much to um, the, the era that I study um, that I begin to think like, you know, we're only scratching the surface of what we know about our literary and artistic history. Um, this, this is why people who do this stuff really, really fascinate me. You know, one of, one of my like heroes who, whose hand I would love to shake, um, is Henry Louis Gates Jr. He's one of these, he's like Superman. 
Um, you know, he's a professor at Harvard. Uh, he's a MacArthur fellow. Um, one of the first, I think, um, he, he's like a, a general editor for so many Norton volumes. He does a lot of work, but much of the work that he does besides being sort of one of the, like the founders of African-American studies, um, is that he is a, a literary sleuth. He's recovering texts by black American voices yeah. with so much success. Yeah. It's insane. He, um, so the common wisdom about African-American writers of the 19th century was that there were no novelists, um, no African-American woman novelists specifically until the 1890s when this poet named Francis Ellen Watkins Harper publishes a novel. I think it's called Eola Leroy. Um, 1890, that's pretty late to be the first person uh, of a certain cultural group to publish a novel. Um, Gates and some fellow scholars found, uh, while he was doing his research, that there were, he found two novels published by black American women in the 1850s and 60s. Um, the, the Harriet E. Wilson's novel, Our Nig, and then Hannah Crafts's novel, The Bond, Bond Woman's Narrative. These are things that nobody knew about. Yeah. Um, Henry Louis Gates Jr. Also, he just released the annotated, it's the African-American Folk Tales by Norton. It was he and Maria Tatar. These are, these are essentially hundreds and hundreds of lost voices. You know, African-American culture is so, it's so rich and creative mm-hmm. and it's been appropriated endlessly by white American culture. But hearing those voices themselves is so critical. And it's that kind of recovery work that I think is really vital. And it's something that I think a lot of scholars increasingly are going to be doing uh, with digital aid in the 21st century. That's it for the first half of our interview. Join us back here next time to hear the rest of our discussion with Zach Turpin. Many thanks to Zach and Courtney and all of you for listening.